war and start again Take it out, struggle in the flesh This battle is not against flesh and blood But to settle our minds at rest Every son of man is the son of Jaja And he must be put to the test in life Who will live all up today and tomorrow To lift him up for the best in life I must confess our father always the man Inside. Even though I'm pressed by the enemy, all of these demons surrounding me left and right To the left and right, to my left and right To the left and right, to them left and right Justness, righteousness standing Christ has been granted, crucified I've been raised from the dead into a lie No separation of you and I I'm being transformed into a lie by the attitude of my mind To put on the new me and watch him shine I may not see this with my eyes But I walk by faith and not by sight Patience for the people, meaning to be equal Patience for our generations, time and the separation We need the world at peace Too many innocent people to see Take a look now, to tell me what you see Everybody dying all around you, now you wanna go and get mad Get raised up and grab a gun, what you think is gonna prove They're never coming back, you're never gonna get it back Now you wanna cry, oh man, I should've told them that Can we give this a chance? Everybody know when the goals run around It's the root, piece of stuff's never find around Spirits all in this place trying to find a hope Kill all the demons, just chill, man, and roll
It's got me questioning Will I ever see the silver lining? And it's crazy little game And it's crazy little game That we call love and pain
we're going to get a little into the uh, Anglo-Moroccan alliance dealing with Queen Elizabeth I and the Moroccan Sultan Ahmad al-Mansur. But before we do that, since we're talking about Queen Elizabeth I, just want to clear up something. We get a lot of whitewashed images of uh, Queen Elizabeth, as we see right here, and uh, probably of Al-Mansur. <laughs> well, I'm going to show you why I'm saying that. We're going to go to the primary sources that describe Queen Elizabeth and her mother. So first, we're in this book. It's called Elizabeth the Queen by Alison Weir, Elizabeth the Queen. You go to page 16 of this book. Go down. Says here, Elizabeth was 25 years old at her accession. She was tall and very slender with tiny waist, small bosom, and beautiful long-fingered hands, which it pleased her vanity to display to advantage in a variety of affected poses. She had a swarthy olive complexion like that of her mother, just like her mother, swarthy like her mother, swarthy, so-called black, dark skin, dark complexion, although she made a habit of whitening it with a lotion made of egg whites, all right? She used to try to make herself look so-called white or more pale. Powdered eggshells, poppy seeds, borax, and alum, which made her face appear white and luminous, but she was swarthy. All right, just in case you don't know what swarthy is, and just a quick reminder, we're here in the American Dictionary of the English Language, all right? This is actually Webster's uh, 1828 uh, Dictionary. All right, I got the official PDF. We're going to go all the way to the word uh, swarthy. All right, and right here, it says swart. It says being of dark hue, moderately black, tawny, swart. Down here, it says swart to make tawny or brown. Swartly, all right, duskly with a tawny hue. It says swartness. Honeyness, a dusky or dark complexion, dark complexion, right? Dark complexion, swarthy, being of a dark hue or dusky complexion. Tawny, in warm climates, the complexion of men is universally what? Swarthy or what? Black in warm climates. Is there only warm climates in Africa? No, we have warm climates all over the world, right? The Moors, Spaniards, and Italians are more swarthy. And the French, Germans, and English. This says their swarthy hose would darken all our plains. Swarthy, all right, black, as the swarthy African says, right? As the swarthy African. So the African is swarthy, right? Swarthy is a tawny color. Swartish, somewhat dark or tawny. Swarthy, swarthy, tawny, all right? So you get the picture, right? Swarthy, so an African is swarthy, right? Black. Right? Continuing. I'm in this book, Calendar of State Papers and Manuscripts Relating to English Affairs, existing in the archives and collections of Venice and in other libraries of Northern Italy, Volume 6, Part 2, edited and translated by Radon Lubach Brown. Okay, that's the book we're getting into. We're on page 1058, and here we got a written account of Giovanni Michiel in Italian, in England, an ambassador in England. And he gets to a part where he starts describing Lady Elizabeth or Queen Elizabeth. It says here, of this sister of hers, I must remind your serenity that after the repudiation of Queen Catherine, the present Queen's mother, she was born of Henry VIII and of his second wife, Anne Boylan, an English woman. All right, we're going to be talking about Anne Boylan, which is Elizabeth's mom. 
and of a noble birth, although two years afterwards she was beheaded for adultery. Yeah, they murdered Queen Elizabeth's mom when she was two years old. My lady Elizabeth was born in September 1533, so she is now 23 years old. She is a young woman whose mind is considered no less excellent, bello, than her person, although her face is commonly graciosa rather than handsome. But she is tall and well-formed with a good skin, although swarty, all right, swarty, she has fine eyes and above all a beautiful hand of which she makes a display, all right, swarty so-called black swarthy dark complexion queen elizabeth another account so again when we look at uh portraits and paintings of queen elizabeth she doesn't look swarthy at all all right this is very very pale skin how they're drawing her all right they do draw her with the red hair i want to show you guys another account what it says about her red hair so i'm in this book is called beauties of english and scottish history to which has added some part of Roman history so far as it is connected with their residence and government in this country. This is from 1828. And page 318 talks about the account of Sir James Melvin, ambassador from Scotland, and his conversation with Queen Elizabeth and what she looked like. So down on page 325, he gets to the part where he's talking about her hair. And she's asking him, what do you think about my hair? I answered in my judgment, the Italian dress, which answered, I found pleased her well, for she delighted to show her golden colored hair, wearing a colin bonnet as they do in Italy. It says here, her hair was more reddish than yellow. It was actually more reddish than yellow, curled in appearance naturally, naturally curled. All right, with curls, reddish curled hair, reddish curled hair so when i think of that i actually think of something like this more right we know she's swarthy natural curled reddish hair all right naturally curled reddish hair swarthy complexion all right swarthy very light swarthy all right fair curled reddish hair curled reddish hair you guys get what I'm showing you? So that's kind of what I picture when I picture Queen Elizabeth. You know, natural, curled, reddish hair. She might have had a, you know, light complexion like this, but they were definitely describing her as swarthy, not as pale skin. Like in this picture, you kind of do see the curled, reddish hair, like little fro. <laughs> but they always paint her very pale skin, not fitting the description of swarthy at all going back to the same book elizabeth the queen by Alison weir here they talk about an acquaintance of queen elizabeth it says here they sent the fiercely protestant right queen elizabeth is protestant as well sir francis walsingham to paris to act as elizabeth envoy walsingham was nearing 40 he had been educated at cambridge Gray's inn in padua and became an mp Later, he had come under the patronage of Cecil, who had offered him a post of court and later placed him in charge of his secret agents. Because of his swarthy complexion and black clothes, Elizabeth nicknamed Walsingham her moor. And although she liked him and was an occasional guest at his house in Barn Elms in Surrey, uh-oh, she sometimes found him more than a match for her intellectually. All right, she called him 
her more. That's my more right there with his, because of his swarthy complexion. Who? Sir Francis Walsingham. And when again, guys, when you go into looking for Sir Francis Walsingham, whitewash images again. You know, Sir Francis, does this look like a more? She called him the more nickname because of his swarthy complexion. It doesn't fit what they're showing us here, guys. These body snatchers, right? Whitewashed images all over the place. All these people were swarthy. Again, Elizabeth nicknamed Walsingham her more. Another interesting part of this book that's on page 342. They're talking about Walter Raleigh. Walter Raleigh, it was Sephardic Jewish ancestry. And um, he fought with his, you know, brethren, the Huguenots in France. He helped them, it says here. He was brilliant and versatile man in his time. He would be a soldier, adventurer, explorer, inventor, scientist, historian, philosopher, poet, and scholar. And he also proved to be an eloquent orator and a competent politician and MP who had a boundless capacity for hard work. He was fearless, daring, and overpoweringly viral, being tall, dark, and swarthy, dark, and swarthy with penetrating eyes and pointed beard he had wrote sir robert mountain his anecdotes of elizabeth's court a good presence and a handsome and well compacted person elizabeth was impressed by his intellectual skills his forthright manner and candid views while to rally we got in our previous videos make sure to check those out how he helped settle the lost colony of roanoke Make sure to get that in his ancestry and cousins, all Sephardic Jews. All right, but again, this source again telling us three famous people in history, very swarthy, swarthy. So moving on real quick, we go to uh, this book, The Life of Anne Bolin. Remember, this is Queen Elizabeth's mom by Philip W. Sargent, author of Cleopatra of Egypt, the Empress Josephine, etc. So we got here a couple testimonials of Anne Boley's appearance or looks. All right. Going further down, it says an Italian critic writing of her in 1532 finds her not one of the handsomest women in the world of middle in stature, dark, dark complexion, long neck, wide mouth, not very full bosom, eyes black and beautiful. Other references to Anne's appearances at some particular period will be found in their due place. From all that we read, we can have no doubt that she was dark, both in hair and complexion, bearing out the lines about her attributed to King Francis I. All right. He called her a brunette. He called her a brunette. And also, uh, we got another testimony of Thomas Wyatt. It says, moderately tall, therefore, and dark with a good complexion and fine eyes. We may assume Anne Boley to have been in her hair among her chief attractions. Moving on on page 130 of this book, uh, we have another testimony of a person. Uh, his name is Simon Greeny. It says, Greeny had come to England early in that year, led chiefly by a desire to visit the libraries of the country, as Erasmus wrote in a letter introducing him to Lord Mountjoy. He did not confine himself to literary research. Speaking of Anne, he says to Boozer, whether she has any children by the king, I do not know. She has not any acknowledged as such. They may probably be brought up in private, which if I am not mistaken, I have heard more than once. Though there are those who positively deny that the king has any intercourse with her, which in my opinion is not likely. But she is young, good-looking, of a rather dark complexion, a rather dark complexion, and likely enough to have children. All right, again, dark complexion. Okay, now I'm in the book, The Creation of Anne Boylan by Susan 
Bordeaux. On page 26 of this book, we got the report of the Venetian diplomat Francesco Sanuto. Again, she's of middle in stature, swarthy complexion, long neck, wide mouth, bosom, not much race, all right? All right, and in this book, The Life and Death of Anne Boylan by Eric Ives, he just going ahead and confirmed. Again, the Venetian diplomat Francesco Sanuto says she had a swarthy complexion. All right, swarthy complexion. Again, all reports agree that Anne was dark, as well as Sanuto Swarthy, Thomas Wyatt gave her the poetic name Brunette. All right, Simon Griney describes her as complexion as rather dark. Okay, rather dark. So again, Queen Elizabeth and her mom, Anne Boylan, all described as so-called black or swarthy. So why the controversy over a black actress playing Anne Boylan? It's unnecessary and harmful. Yes, guys. They're actually depicting her correctly in this uh, TV show uh, played by Jodie Turner-Smith, the actress. And she's playing Anne Boylan, Queen Elizabeth's mom. And it's a lot of controversy. People saying, why are they doing that? You know, depicting her like that when she was so-called white. When we just read all the primary accounts of her being dark-skinned or swarthy. So this is a little bit of the show right here. This is a little trailer so you guys can see, you know, all right, that's what they're depicting in this show. But then they still got everybody else so-called white. So Dr. Hijack with everything else, but little by little, the truth is coming out. huh? So again, Dr. Hijack, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> so yeah, I hope you guys see there's a lot to actually look into uh, because those are like literally the only accounts of her physical appearance. And there was more of them saying, out of all the ones that exist, literally saying that she had dark complexion. So we got to go with those then over these, you know, whitewashed images that they've given us. So we're going to get into a little bit of the Anglo-Moroccan alliance, as it says here. We're going to be talking about sugar today. So one of the things that they agreed upon was where they're going to establish the sugar plantations. Who was running the sugar? Uh, well, the Muslim Moors, Sephardic Jews in control of the sugar industry during this time. Before it even came to America and they set up uh, plantations in the Americas, they were doing this in Africa, in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula, Morocco, and St. Thomas Islands and the islands of the coast of Africa. They were already doing their plantations. They had their so-called slaves. We're going to read today a little bit later. They're going to mention they were bringing European so-called slaves, you know. So again, a lot of those people included the people they were uh, getting rid of in Spain and Portugal, uh, Sephardic Jews and Moors. Of course, the same people were not only the so-called slave, but the people funding and running the plantations. They were expert at sugar producing. We're going to read that today. And they were the first ones to actually establish that in America. And again, Sephardic Jews, Moors, these are all so-called black folks. It wasn't about color, and it's not the evil white man. So real quick, under Queen Elizabeth I on Wikipedia, look what it says here under uh, Muslim states. It says, traded diplomatic relations between England and the Barbary Straits. During the rule of Elizabeth, England established a trading relationship with Morocco in opposition to Spain, selling armor, ammunition, timber, and metal in exchange for Moroccan sugar. Sugar. Moroccan had the control of sugar. In spite of Papal ban, right? They were the ones starting that whole slavery plantation whole system. Now look at down here, it says, in one correspondence, Murad entertained the notion that Islam and Protestantism 
had much more in common than either did with Roman Catholicism, as both rejected the worship of idols and argued for an alliance between England and the Ottoman Empire, Islam and Protestantism. Remember who's the Huguenots? They were actually Moors, right? Islamic Moors who had fled and became known as Protestants or Huguenots. It's the same thing. A lot of those people were Islamic or Muslims that became Protestants. We've shown that in past videos. Says here, Elizabeth's personal religious convictions have been much debated by scholars. She was a Protestant, but kept Catholic symbols and downplayed the role of sermons in defiance of a key Protestant belief. She was actually Protestant, okay? That's why she's doing deals with Walter Raleigh, Francis Drake, and going after the so-called Spanish and the Caribbean, right? Pirates of the Caribbean. She's employing them, and now she's doing an alliance with the Moors from Morocco. So let's get into a little bit of that history. All right. All right, so we're in this book right here called Conquistadors of the Red City, the Moroccan Conquest of the Songhai Empire by Comer Plummer III. And shout out to Treda Wakandan. All right, so this is the book we're going to get into right now. So we're in page 55, just get a little reference. So they're talking about Al-Mansur, I guess he was the ruler of Morocco during a time when, uh, yeah, they were doing business and commerce with England, Queen Elizabeth, all right? So let me just start right here. It says, meanwhile, Al-Mansur also developed his diplomatic and commercial ties with England. This country offered a lifeline out from in between the Spanish Ottoman hammer and anvil predicament. So see this, uh, the Spaniards were allied with the Ottomans and they had a lot of the, uh, power and, you know, going all around the world and doing conquests like in the Americas, especially, right? Because this is in the 1500s we're talking about. So the Spanish already got the whole Americas and the Portuguese, right? And the Ottoman, it seems to have an alliance with them, right? So the Morocco is trying to get an alliance with England, right? So it says this Bergeronian relationship was also timely since the ransom money had dried up and the sugar receipts from London were indispensable to paying his army. As never before, the sugar was flowing out of Safi and Agadir, and the manufactured goods of London and beyond were pouring into Marrakesh. In 1582, the greater danger was passed. Spain was disengaging from North Africa, and the Turks appeared to have finally accepted Moroccan independence. While the Algerians remained a worrisome neighbor, the threat of foreign invasion appeared to be, at least for a time, over. Freed from such immediate concerns, Al-Mansur began to act upon his desires. Most of his musings were directed at the only foreign ruler he seemed to trust to any degree, Queen Elizabeth I of England. With her, he formed a Barbary trading company. So Al-Mansur, Morocco, right? formed the Barbary Trading Company with Queen Elizabeth, all right? The Barbary Trading Company with Queen Elizabeth. Remember, this is before they went and settled did their colonies in the Americas. There's an alliance here before that, right? In exchange for sugar and saltpeter, she agreed to provide timber for a Moroccan fleet. On another occasion, Al-Mansur negotiated for her to build him 10 galleys. The two corresponded for, of an alliance against Spain. Against Spain. That means everything they own. So if Spain is in the Americas, right? If they got the whole Central America and the Caribbean and parts of South America uh, already invaded and con conquered, they mean they're going to go after them there. 
They plotted to support the candidacy of Don Antonio Prior of Crato to the Portuguese throne, which Philip II of Spain had assumed in 1580. The Moroccan Sultan pledged to provide foodstuffs to an English force in an attack on Lisbon. Almansor even went so far as to propose that Morocco and England divide Spain's New World colonies between them. So Morocco had an alliance with England, and they said, let's get together with Morocco taking off the more tropical varieties such as the West Indies. They were like, give us the West Indies. We like that. Given Moroccan expertise in sugar cultivation, who went to make plantations in the West Indies? Morocco. Right? They sent pirates. These privateers, they called them. They were sending pirates to invade the Spanish ships. We went over this in my past videos, right? Who are these pirates? Remember? They draw them as pirates today because that meant Negro Loro or dark skinned Loro, a Loro, a Lora. That means parrot today. That's why they show you parrots. Because the pirates, these captains, a lot of them were Moors. They were the ones who knew how to sail the world. All right? They were pretty good at it. So they said, hey, let's get together. I got sugar. Because Al-Mansur was growing sugar in Morocco, right? They have a lot of sugar exporting all over the world. They're like, fuck it. Give me the West Indies. I'll help you go against Spain. Right? So I can go cultivate over there. Given Moroccan expertise in sugar cultivation, he reasoned this would be appropriate. It was all very grand for a kingdom of land lubbers whose army was reliant on foreign soldiers and mercenaries. Mercenaries, Ahmad al-Mansur's correspondence with Elizabeth, went on until her death a few months before his own. While the Queen's letters reflected diminishing expectations of al-Mansur's missives were unremittingly grandiose. Taken as a whole, they are a catalog of wishful thinking. All right. They say wishful thinking, but we know what's up because we're about to show you something. All right. So I just want to go to another page in this book. So again, they had sugar, right? So it says Moroccan historian and statesman of Sajani. All right. Reported that among the first things Sultan Al-Mansur did after his great victory in the Sudan was to build sugar refineries like pyramids. According to Al-Fishtali Al-Mansur, built many sugar refineries in Haha Shishawa in the south of Morocco with gold from the Sudanese campaign and cheap labor. Black slaves obtained from the Sudan, it says, the Sultan must have been inspired to restart the sugar industry on a large scale, a lucrative product with a ready market in Europe. Al-Ifrani died in the years, has reported that Italian marble was exchanged for Moroccan sugar weight for weight. Paul Berthier drawing from primary sources that discussed the use of slave labor and sugar production slave labor and sugar production you see they were good at this identified a set of toponymous associated with the regions in which sugar was produced Dior al-abid the house of slaves and radar al-bid cemetery of first slaves all right you know these names <laughs> the village of slaves and al-asur the aqueduct of slaves in shishawa in Sus, a largely berber speaking area berber the top name in close proximity to the sugar refinery of Tassimur was called Agrum Isam or something about slave, right? Meaning the gathering place for slaves. So they had, wherever they had their sugar plantations, right? In all these places, Al-Mansur, right? The Moroccan dude, right? In Morocco, that's where they, they said that's where the slaves was gathered because that's they were working the slaves there. Like plantations like, like eventually happened in the West Indies Right? Like eventually happened in the West Indies, same system before. 
right? They had this already established in Morocco. Spanish chronicler Luis del Marno Carvajal noted that in the 1550s, the European captives were used in the Sus to produce sugar. European slaves appeared to be less numerous than enslaved black Africans. The sugar produced in these areas was of high quality and exported to European countries such as Italy and France, but especially to England. Because during this period, Morocco had an alliance with England. Almansor's foreign affairs with England under Queen Elizabeth were intriguing. After the initial commercial alliance, Queen Elizabeth was interested in a military collaboration with Almansor, a military collaboration with the Moors, England with the Moors. In a letter to Queen Elizabeth in 1601, Almansor proposed that Morocco and England together conquer the West Indies, expel the Spaniards, and occupy the land under a joint authority. You know, the English had war with the Spanish. We know the English were sending pirates invading Spanish colonies. We know this. We've gone over this a lot, right? They were raiding the Spaniards. This is exactly what they were talking about. So again, it says, all right, Almanzor proposed that Morocco and England together conquer the West Indies. All right, expel the Spaniards and occupy the land under a joint authority. The queen was well disposed to attack the Spaniards in their colonies. Oh, yeah, we could do it over there, but not in their homeland. Yeah, let's go to war with them over there in the Americas. Consequently, she asked the Sultan of Morocco to provide 100,000 pounds for the joint scheme. Almansur envisioned the occupation of the West Indies in the following letter that he wrote to the Queen. Besides, we must treat of your army and of your our army. We shall go to those countries of people in the land. After that, with the help of God, we shall have subdued it. So they're talking about go take, going to here, coming here to America and taking your land. And they say with the help of God. So they're saying Morocco and England. We shall have subdued it. Subdue it. For our intent is not only to enter upon the land to sack it. It's not just that we're going to sack it and leave it. But we're going to possess it and that it remain under our dominion forever. We're going to make sure. We're not just going to sack it and leave it. We're going to stay here. We're going to possess it forever under our dominion. Morocco and England. By the help of God, he says, to join it to our state and yours. And therefore, it shall be needful for us to treat the people in thereof, whether it be your pleasure, it shall be inhabited by our army of yours, or whether we shall take it on our chart to inhab inhabit it with our army without yours. In respect of the great heat of the climate, where those of your country do not uh, find themselves fit to endure the extremity of heat, there and of the cold of your party parts where our men endure it very well by reason that the heat hurts them not so that he wants the hot parts that's what he's saying the letter continues to emphasize that this will be a joint venture in which the two parties will equally share in the profits of the west indies in the profits of the west indies tobacco sugar cocoa everything so that was a little bit of uh, the history of the Anglo-Moroccan alliance. You see how they were getting down, splitting America. Yes, already setting up their plantation system over there the way the Moroccans were doing it. They were bringing that type of slavery mentality, cruel, let's overwork these people. 
who are we going to use? The American Indians, of course, that are over there. And who else? Well, the people we don't want in Europe and in Morocco and all the undersibles and everything. So we're going to continue talking about sugar since we already uh, learned a little bit about it. Show a little bit of past uh, information. We're going to go over again regarding how the Sephardic Jews, you know, in every way, as you guys can see, Morocco included this Morocco Anglo Alliance. The people involved included Moors and Sephardic Jews. That's why. And there was a specific reason because they were the ones who were very good at it. And they were used to establish these things in the Americas, as we're going to read. Remember, Sephardic Jews were so-called black. They were very swarthy. We've gone over the primary sources describing them. And again, a lot of these are also Muslims that had converted to Judaism. Talking about Moranos and Moriscos. You guys already know. Article says here the Jews and the sugar industry of colonial Brazil. The sugar industry. Hmm. Jewish Social Studies, Volume 18, Number 3. This is from July 1956, from pages 189 to 198. Indiana University Press. I have got this as an online read. Again, the Jews and the sugar industry of colonial Brazil. Sugar was first produced in Asia. What Asia? It's talking about the farthest east, like America, Asia, and the European crusaders became acquainted with it through the Arabs. But at late, as late as the beginning of the 15th century, sugar was so expensive in Europe that it was sold only in pharmacies for medicinal purposes. All right. In 1420, Portugal transplanted sugar cane from Sicily to Madeira, discovered in 1400. All right. So they were started their own plantations. All right. Portuguese. 1420, before the Inquisition, who are these Portuguese that have ships and are in the trade and merchant business? That island sugar industry was so successful that by the end of the 15th century, 150 sugar factories had been established in Madeira. In 1493, possibly even earlier, the Portuguese transplanted sugar cane from Madeira to the island of Sao Tome in the Gulf of Guinea off the west coast of Africa. So then they went over there. There's a little, there's an island off the coast of Guinea there. And there's a whole history of how they were sending all these um, orphan children and, and prisoners of war, Sephardic Jews, when they were being expelled over to this island to work the sugar plantations as slaves. All right, it wasn't Africans they were grabbing. Again, remember, these are people of color. So what happened to their descendants today? They're probably being called African today, Afro-Jewish. All right, so again, this is in St. Thomas, island off the coast of Guinea. They also began the manufacture of sugar on that island. Satoma harbored convicts, all right? They harbored what? Convicts and exiled Jews who had refused to recant their Judaism. All right, these Jews planted sugar cane. They planted sugar cane there on a large scale, so they enslaved, they're the ones planted. Established many sugar mills, employing at times as many as 3,000 Negro slaves. What Negro slaves? By 1522, Sao Tomé had 60 sugar factories. Production by the 210 factories in Madeira and Sao Tomé enabled Portugal to dominate the world's sugar trade. All right? Who was dominating the sugar trade? Portuguese, what? And Moors. Within a century, it fell by approximately 85%. It was at this point that the Brazilian sugar entered the world. Marks all of a sudden, it went from those places over to Brazil. In 1516, the Portuguese King Dom Manuel I decreed that persons emigrating to Brazil be given, at the expense of the crown, all the necessary equipment to build a sugar mill there. He also gave an order that an expert be sent to aid in that project. The decree reads in part, access, 
methods and other tools should be given to the persons who go to populate Brazil and an experienced and capable man should be sent to Brazil to start a sugar mill. He should receive assistance and all the materials and implements necessary for the building of the mill. All right. So even the king was helping people settle in Brazil for the specific uh, intention to create a sugar plantation. It is a historical fact supported by documentary evidence that a consortium of Jews headed by Fernão de Noronha had obtained in 1502 a three-year lease from the Portuguese crown for the exploration and settlement of the newly discovered Brazil. All right? Jews, what Jews? Sephardic Jews, Moorish Jews, Maranos, people of color, so-called Negroes, Jews, setting up plantation uh, shops over in Brazil, enslaving local populations, and even other their own people sometimes coming as indentured servants, Latinos, all these other people, Black Irish, all these other people they were bringing over as indentured servants. All right, this consortium of Jews. The lease constituting in reality a monopoly. They established a monopoly. All right, this lease they got. What lease? Who they lease it from? The Indians? They lease the land? Or did they, just, did they just take it? Or did they do some fake treaties with them? The lease constituting in reality a monopoly was extended for an additional 10 years in 1505. This consortium sent six ships each year to Brazil with materials, goods, and colonists. Under its auspices, new lands were discovered and settled, and fortifications erected and maintained. The consortium pioneered in the dyewood industry, and it was the first colonizer, exporter, and importer of commodities. This consortium. Who's this consortium again? They're talking about Jews. Sephardic Jews were the very first successful people in the colonies of the Americas. Importing, exporting, creating business, money, plantations. Get what what I'm showing you here, right? And these again, these are all people of color. Most of them, if not all. In a spiritual enterprise, the men composing the consortium invested their capital and took risks in the new land from which the Portuguese crown profited without taking the slightest risk. So how could the Portuguese, why would they do that? Now remember, these are Sephardic Jews who are being like allowed to leave so they can practice their whole religion and everything, Jews and more Muslims in, in, in Brazil. But the condition was that they'll finance them, go over there, we expelled you from here, but just make us money, here, create some plantations. So the crown really didn't do any of the work. It was the Sephardic Jews financing all this stuff on their own and doing all the work, most of, most of it. They were just being provided the, the lease, they were being provided tools and stuff like that. They were being allowed. It is obvious that the Noronha group brought sugar cane to Brazil from Madeira and South Tomás. All right, so they brought it, what they were doing over there, and they brought it over to Brazil, where their ships landed en route. It is equally clear that it made successful attempts at planting sugar in Brazil, so that by 1516, the construction of sugar mill had become necessary. By that time, the Portuguese crown had become aware the colonization of Brazil was a profitable venture. The lease of the consortium had expired and was not extended for reasons unknown. In any event, in 1516, after the expiration of the lease, the Portuguese crown took the initiative in establishing the first sugar mill in Brazil. The oldest printed source concerning the transplantation of sugar cane by Jews to Brazil dates to 1779. 
Don Antonio de Company de Montapalo, a member of the Royal Academy of History and Letters of Seville, Spain, wrote, This last commodity is a product derived from Asia and was only used in medicine until the area of its production and cultivation in America, where it was brought from the island of Madeira in 1549 by some Jews banned from Portugal. Banned. Again, they were being kicked out of Portugal, but then they were also being helped so they can go do whatever they want in Brazil, but just make us some money, create these sugar plantations, bring the money back to us. The date 1549 is not correct. As we have shown, sugarcane was transplanted to Brazil even before 1560. The first known Engenho sugar plantation mill in Pernambuco belonged to Cristobal Jacques. Documents of 1526 refer to the first customs payment in Lisbon for sugar imported from Brazil. The second known sugar mill called Engenho del Senhor Governador was established by the Donatario Concessionaire Martin Afonso de Souza and Sao Vicente, seven miles from the present-day harbor Santos in Sao Paulo. Duarte Coelho appointed Donatario the Competency of Pernambuco by Portuguese Royal Decree of March 10, 1534, was first engaged in the systematic and intensive cultivation of sugarcane and in the development of the sugar industry. His letter to the King of Portugal, April 27, 1542, reveals that he was instrumental in establishing large sugar plantations in Brazil and that he had issued orders for the building of sugar mills by contractors whom he had brought from Portugal. I gave orders, he wrote, to establish sugar mills by contractors, and I did everything requested by them. We have planted large quantities of sugar cane. His brother-in-law, Geronimo de Albuquerque, established the third known Brazilian sugar mill called Nossa Senhora de Ajuda in the captaincy of Pernambuco. The historian Oliveira Lima writes, without indicating the source, that the foreman and work Working men brought by Duarte Coelho from Madeira and Sao Tomé to Brazil were mostly Jews who were the best economic element of that time and who gained advantages by escaping from the religious fury that raged on the peninsula. Again, this is very important what they're telling us here. They're letting us know some secret right here. Because I bet you in history, when they were saying that this guy, this plantation owner, Duarte Coelho, right? This Jewish uh, Portuguese that making us want to think that he was white. That he was bringing in Africans because this is Santo Mar is off the coast of West uh, uh, of Guinea, West Africa, and Madeira is really close there off the coast. So they probably wanted us to think that these were Africans they were bringing. But he's letting us know right here. He's not indicating the source that all these foremen and workmen brought by Mr. Duarte Coelho, this plantation from Madeira and Santo Mar to Brazil were mostly Jews, Jews, Sephardic Jews, people of color. They were Negroes, but they were Sephardic Jews from Spain and Portugal, all right, who were basically escaping their persecution, religious freedom. The Brazilian sociologist Gilberto Freire states that Jewish mechanics for the sugar factories had to be imported to Brazil. He fails completely to mention that many Jews were senores de engenho, owners of sugarcane plantations and sugar mills, all right? Many of the Jews, what? They were the plantation. They were doing all this. They were working it. They were doing everything. All right, so the article keeps talking about the influence of the Jews, how they got established eventually, I guess, to so this uh, information right here by the 1600s, right? Because remember, they were there since the 15, 1502, 1505. So 100 years later, all right, in Brazil, Sephardic Jews, right, doing sugar stuff. 
The records of the visitation of 16, and 18, and 19 in Bahia revealed that for about 25 years, the Maranos of Brazil, Maranos of Brazil, and the professing Jews of Flanders, as in Europe, were in constant communication. The Maranos were the most active in the export of sugar from Brazil. The Maranos were holding it down. Sephardic Jews, Moors, Moorish Jews, they enjoyed family and business connections in Portugal. They enjoyed what? Their business connections and their family connections in Portugal. And with the former Portuguese Maranos, who had escaped to Amsterdam and lived there as professing Jews. All right, they weren't Maranos or new Christians anymore. They were openly openly living as Jews now again in Amsterdam. All right, so you hear all see how we went all the way back? We went from Brazil all the way back to Amsterdam. So you see who was in Amsterdam again. Don't forget the Huguenots. Don't forget that these are the French. These are Jews too. All these people, these Dutch, all of them, a lot of them, most of them were Sephardic Jews and Moors, Muslims. All right? They were holding it down. You see this business connections in Portugal. No, we're going to get more into that. All right? What did they eventually do? In 1630, the Dutch conquered the captaincy of Pernambuco and shortly after all the northern provinces of Brazil they were expelled by a Brazilian Portuguese Liberation Army in 1654 thousands of Jews emigrated in those 24 years from Europe to Dutch Brazil and many Brazilians Marano seasoned to feign loyalty to Catholicism became circumcised and openly embraced Judaism all right, so I just wanted to go ahead and uh, get this article uh, read out a little bit so you can see what they were doing in Brazil and how long ago, very beginning, right after, right soon after they discovered America in the South America, right, 1490s, already in 1505, 1502, they were setting up shop for plantation and sugar, right, in Brazil. And eventually they got conquered. They had to, uh, some of them had to bounce, right, and they ended up in back where? In Amsterdam and, you know, where else? And New Amsterdam. New York, all right? So we're starting to see a whole network here, whole real history, no fairy tales, Kunta Quinte, fairy tales, none of that stuff, and some random people just randomly uh, colonizing random spots and uh, somehow randomly connecting with other countries and other places and doing business. No, it wasn't like that. It wasn't random. Uh, it says here, communities of port Jews and their contacts in the Dutch Atlantic world poor jews and their contacts in the dutch atlantic world this is jewish history journal article volume 20 number two poor jews of the atlantic 2006 page 129 to 145 communities of poor jews and their contacts in the dutch atlantic world that says here the abstract all right this is from will Kluster, clark university worcester mass usa says in the late 16th century jews and conversos created a trading network that tied together ports in portugal brazil and the netherlands all right you see how they did that now this network became the chief dutch commercial circuit in the first quarter of the 17th century and offered benefits to jews and conversos that were not solely economic ones the circuit made it possible for brazilians new christians new Christians to return to Judaism. Protestants, they went from being Jew Sephardic, you know, their culture to new Christians, so-called Protestants, to back to being able to be Jews again in Amsterdam. And Amsterdam Jews to establish a community in Brazil. All right, remember, you see the whole connection now in Amsterdam. 
these are Dutch, these are really just Sephardic Jews. And the process, the port Jews of Recife, Brazil, and Amsterdam became closely connected. They had a connection, a global network, especially after warfare closed off access to Portuguese ports in the network. Amsterdam Jews arrived in force and Recife during the 1630s. They started just colonizing Brazil, right? But traveled back to Amsterdam during the years 1645 and 54. They had to go back. Remember, the Dutch went over there. Since the Dutch colony Brazil was shrinking and eventually was captured by Portuguese troops, the Portuguese recaptured it again. Jews contributed commercially, financially, and militarily to this short-lived colony and were rewarded with privileges, which for this time were remarkable. All right? A whole history they don't even teach us. They want to think they're just white, random people. And it's not even like that, right? You guys seeing what I'm showing you, right? I hope you see how deep this is. Since Port Jews, it has been said, were travelers, strangers, boundary crossers, and cultural brokers, purveyors of products between far and near. So true is this statement that Port Jews must be viewed from a perspective much like that used by practitioners of Atlantic history who place interconnectedness at center stage. Their studies concentrate on the flow of people, commodities, microbes, and information, and in the end, they offer a new perspective that goes beyond the traditional one of studying people in their immediate local and changes the way we understand people, communities, and nations, all right? I think they're saying what I just had said to you guys. It's bigger than that. It's just not random. It's what they're saying. It's not just random stuff. For it takes into account social, cultural, political, and economic impact over a wide area People who are socially the same, culturally the same, politically in the same mind state. That's why they're Portuguese, Jews, German, French coming together because they're socially the same. Or culturally, they might be from the same background or political views, religious views. In our case, in particular, that of the Atlantic world. A scholarly article says here, the role of Sephardic Jews in the British Caribbean area during the 17th century. All right. We already know they were the sugar planters, so we're going to get some more correlation here. This is from the Caribbean Studies uh, Journal, Volume 4, Number 3, from October 1964, pages 32 to 49. It's about 18 pages. This is the article right here by Gordon Merrill. The role of Sephardic Jews, Sephardis, all right, people of color. All right, and it says down here in the second paragraph, we're going to begin. It says, the transformation of almost uninhabited islands in the Caribbean from a state of nature to agricultural colonies producing sugar for a distant market took place within the remarkably short span of 50 years in the 17th century. All right, so here what they're saying, they grabbed these islands who were very natural and beautiful, probably had a lot of... Uh, indigenous uh, vegetation animals and people and they turned them into basically uh sugar producing markets for a, a distant market for people for foreign people what happened to all the local stuff the accomplishment is even more surprising all right listen to this when it is realized that neither the English planter nor the African slave had any significant previous experience with sugarcane agriculture and the system of sugar manufacture, okay? There was no African slave right over here to grow sugar. They didn't know anything about sugar growing. It wasn't them and it wasn't no English white man planter. Letting you know straight up, there's a major drop right here. Right, we should have already concluded that as we're learning watching this video today right however brazil was an important producer of sugar but somebody was doing it 
because some Brazil was an important producer of sugar during the early decades of the 17th century, and it is a logical to look for influences from that quarter. All right. So who was running things in that quarter? This is what he's letting you know. It is sometimes claimed that Portuguese Jews from Brazil were no innovators of change in these British colonies during the 17th century, bringing capital, trading skills, slaves, and much-needed experience in sugarcane agriculture and sugar manufacture at a critical time in the development of the colonies. This article attempts to establish the facts in order to draw a recent conclusion on the role of the Sephardic Jews in this part of the world during the 17th century, who's running things, who's really setting up shop and helping all these empires grow, their knowledge with the sugar plantations. The curiosity of the writer concerning the Sephardic Jews was aroused in 1952 on first examining the dozen or so remaining tombstones in an unkept Jewish cemetery on Nevis. All right, Nevis, remember Alexander Hamilton? Again, he was a Sephardic Jew. That's why we already know Alexander Hamilton, a person of color. Again, they were calling him a Negro, mulatto, you know, Swarty. They were calling him all these things. We got the video already. All right, he was Huguenot and Sephardic Jew. Huguenot and Sephardic Jew. It boils down to almost the same thing. The dates of burial were from 1660 to 1725. Richard Pottis, in his authoritative book on Nevis, recorded the commercial activity of the Portuguese Jews on the island during that period. Long abandoned burial grounds for these folks exist on the other islands in the Lesser Antilles, and Jewish synagogues have survived into the 20th century of Barbados and Jamaica. All right, so this Jewish cemeteries. Again, Alexander Hamilton's uh, ancestors are buried in these Jewish cemeteries. And we got the video and explaining that and showing that. All right, so they're all over these places in Barbados as well, uh, in Jamaica as well. The immediate place of origin of the Jews was Brazil. Most of them had to come out of Brazil, but out of Brazil, they had to come originally from Amsterdam or directly from uh, Spain or Portugal being exiled or from other countries they were exiled in. It's a whole history here, right? So they was from Brazil, from which they fled in the middle of the 17th century in order to escape religious persecution. The ultimate origin of these folks lies in the Mediterranean world. Persecution and forced migration of the Sephardic Jews began in Spain in 1478 with the establishment of the Inquisition. A similar experience of forced migration awaited them in Brazil almost 200 years later. Although the major aim of this paper is to throw whatever light is possible on the role of the Sephardic Jews in the British colonies of the Caribbean, it is necessary to sketch in their background in Europe and in Brazil. And the organization of the paper is to that end. So it says European background. It says Sephardic Jews have a long, at times, illustrious history in Europe. Semitic traders from Sigon and Tyre traveled the length of the Mediterranean world in classical times and settled on the distant Iberian shores. The Jews were influential during the Roman period, but they enjoyed a truly golden age under the Moors. All right? What? We got this a lot in my past videos, Columbus and his Negro friends. We also got it in the Moorish videos that I made. Uh, no more hijack, no more misunderstanding. Uh, the uh, Sephardic Jews actually were very prosperous. That was their golden age time, too under the Moors when they were free to move within Muslim world in search of economic and intellectual gains. They became rich, aristocratic, learned, haughty, and powerful. 
the Sephardic Jews and the Moors, they were together. It's what I showed you. Eventually, the name Sephirat, Sephirat, the original was over there, came to be applied by the Hebrews to the kingdoms of Castilla, Navarra, Aragon, and Portugal. And Jews of Spain and Portuguese origin became known as Sephardic Jews. All right. Again, people of color living prosperous under the Moors, their brothers and cousins. In contrast to the Ashkenazim, all right, it's different. I right, listen to this Sephardic Jews, in contrast to the Ashkenazims or European Jews of Slavonic origin, they're different. All right, you were blaming these people this whole time. You were picturing these Ashkenazi European Jews of Slavonic origin. You know, that's what you were always picturing. And it was actually the Sephardic Jews living under the Moors, prosperous, their brothers, right? A lot of them related, you know. They, it was actually them plant, setting up shop, colonizing over here first. Sephardic Jews adopted a veneer of Christianity under the compulsion of the Inquisition. So they adopted Christianity, right? They had to become what? Presbyterians, Protestants, Quakers, Baptists, all right? You know, these new Christians, new Christians. And those who emigrated to the new world were termed new Christians, like I just said, appropriately and disapprovingly by the Spanish chroniclers. The Sephardic Jews were archly conservative in outlook, preserving the intellectual traditions that had evolved in Moorish Spain and North Africa. They invited the attention of bigots in an age of religious intolerance. The conservatism of the Sephardim is still to be observed in the 20th century in the attachment to a particular pronunciation of Hebrew and in the instinctive preference for an unchanging simplicity of service in the synagogue. Furthermore, congregations of Spanish Jews in the United States who have been all away from Spain for centuries are said to retain to the present time the Spanish language. In the Middle Ages, Spain and Portugal in somewhat contrasting ways attempted to solve the problem posed by these rich, influential folk of unpopular belief, and in so doing, Portugal in particular produced a number of new Christians prepared to throw off the cloak of new religion at the first opportunity. All right, who these people were, what is their history, we eventually got all this, but it was important to know, like I did show in my video, that they were merchants and they were traders from way back, from ancient times. They had all the routes. That's why it was natural for them to become the merchants in the sea. You know what I'm saying? These Moranos, especially when they were under the Moors, right? Marine, the Moors going around, uh, these old school Phoenicians, you know, influencing these old school Danites. All right, so continue a little further in this article. It says, at the beginning of the 16th century, Spain and Portugal contained no practicing Jews, only new Christians or Moranos, right? They had to practice in secret, as they were known in the Iberian Peninsula. Although they were forbidden to leave their homelands, least they discard the new religion before the long Morano fugitives began to appear in other parts of Europe. Many of them reached the low countries of Northern Europe in the late 15th, 16th century, where they maintained an outward attachment to Christianity. All right, what is that? Protestantism? Portuguese Morano communities at home played an important role in overseas trade and enjoyed connections with new Christian communities abroad. They were starting to establish their network. By way of example, the great Morano mercantile House of Mendes which held the coveted pepper monopoly, all but rivaled the Fugers at one time in the extent and importance of its transactions. In 1512, the House of Mendes established its Antwerp branch, Antwerp, remember that? An indication of the network of international financial power in the hands of the Portuguese Jews. 
Amsterdam and Antwerp became centers of Marano population and power during the 16th century. Centers. Who was running stuff in Amsterdam and who was there also hugging us, right? Remember, we're going to get into that again. The Inquisition was established in Portugal in 1531 and new Christians from their south a refuge in northern Europe. The trickle of fugitives became a flood after the declaration of Dutch independence in 1579, which brought the expectation of full religious freedom. Within a few years, Marano settled in Amsterdam as Jews, and they were joined by many others from Antwerp who threw off the cloak of secrecy and openly practiced Judaism. Amsterdam eventually had over 4,000 Sephardic Jews and gained the title of the Dutch Jerusalem. It is noteworthy that until the establishment of the State of Israel, Amsterdam remained the spiritual center of Sephardic Jewish communities scattered throughout the world. You hear that? Amsterdam, Dutch. During this period, England remained close to Sephardic refugees. At this point, it is useful to turn to the entry of these folk into Brazil, from which they later spread into the Caribbean area and North America. All right, so see what we're getting into, right? So it's number two. The entry of Sephardic Jews into the New World. Spain and Portugal sought by legislation to keep their colonies in the New World, free of Jews and new Christians. Persecution at home and the magnet of trading opportunity abroad encouraged these folks to work against that policy. Many succeeded, for such restrictive laws are difficult to enforce in any age. Furthermore, it appears that official policy did not remain unshaken over the centuries involved. From time to time, new Christians were able to secure the suspension of the restrictive laws by purchase for example in 1509 an agreement was reached in seville between the conversos and the crown whereby new christians were permitted to go to the colonies for purposes of trade periods not exceeding two years on payment of a fee of 20,000 ducats also it appears that on occasion officialdom wavered in its basic policy and permitted new christians to emigrate to the colonies probably in recognition of the need for colonists so they were making deals with them, like I was saying earlier, right? In any event, facts speak clearly. Thousands of Sephardic Jews managed by legal means or otherwise to reach the New World as new Christians. Thousands. Life had been subject to suspicion and intrigue for the secret Jews in Portugal. The Inquisitions of Lisbon, Coimbra, and Evora held 47 great autos de fe between 1612 and 1630. And this feverish activity against the secret Jew provided the motive to illegal emigration, the Inquisition went to astounding lengths to identify the non-believers and to save their souls at the expense of their lives. The religious quality of the blood was examined and classified by the agents of the Inquisition with obvious seal. Heretics were judged to be full, three-quarters, one-half, one-quarter, one-eighth, partly or more than partly new Christians. The attraction of a freer society in the New World must have been great for these Jews. Recife in northern Brazil fell to the Dutch in 1630. Within six years, Dutch control extended from Rio San Francisco in the south to the captaincy of Maranhão in the north, and the Dutch colony became known as New Holland. All right, New Holland in Brazil. There was a considerable amount of religious toleration and population that contained Dutch Protestants. All right, there we go, Protestants. Who's these Protestants? Portuguese Catholics, New Christians, professing Jews, native Indians, and Negro slaves. A lot of these people are the same. In 1634, the state general issued a proclamation guaranteeing Jews and Catholics the free practice of their religion without investigation of their conscience 
or their home. Under these circumstances, the Moranos threw off the cloak of Christianity and openly embraced their own religion. They were joined by numerous Jewish immigrants from Holland, and in 1640, the Jewish inhabitants of Recife were said to be more numerous than the Christians. By 1654, the city is reported to have had 5,000 Jewish inhabitants. Attention is now directed to the economic activities of these folks. Contemporary accounts are not numerous, but John Newhoff has left a rather detailed account of New Holland, which he visited in 1643. Newhoff was impressed by the sugar industry, the sugar industry in the colony, to the point of proclaiming that no other place in the West Indies could enter the industry with any prospect of profit. As for the Jewish inhabitants, he wrote, all right, among the free inhabitants of Brazil that were not in the company's service, Dutch West India Company, the Jews were the most considerable in number who had transported themselves thither from Holland. They came from Holland. They had a, but who were these Holland Jews? They were Sephardic Portuguese people of color. They had a vast traffic beyond all the rest. They purchased sugar mills and built stately houses in the Recife. They were all traders, which could have been of great consequence to the Dutch Brazil had they kept themselves within the due bounds of traffic. All right, and continuing a little bit ahead, it says, during the course of the struggle by the Portuguese. All right, so remember what's going on. I know it's a lot of info, guys. I don't know if you guys are bored or not, but I hope you guys are enjoying this information. You know, I, I just, for me, putting it all together, it's just, I'm just like, wow. You know, I just wanted everybody to see this information and, and kind of like get a, a whole background behind it, you know, a real historical background who these people are and everything, not just labels like uh, Portuguese, Jews, Dutch, you know, there's these are people, there's backgrounds behind these people, you know. It's like they call anybody an American today, right? It's, a, it's everybody indigenous to America that they're being called American, you know. So just like these people, they might be called Dutch, they might be called French, they might, but a lot of them are, are Sephardic Jews or, or Muslim Moors uh, from Spain and Portugal. All right, this is the, the what I'm trying to show in this particular uh, study, the presentation. And um, it says here, you know, that, you know, the Dutch had control of Brazil for a, a bit. You know, they had taken it from the Portuguese. And, you know, Jews were like, yeah, you know, we get to be Jews again and everything. So eventually the Portuguese regained control of Brazil at this part. So what happened? Uh, many Jews uh, basically became convinced that for their own safety, they should move to neighboring colonies, such as Cayenne and Suriname. The fall of Recife in 1654, so that's when the Portuguese took over again. Thousands of Jews were given three months to leave Brazil or suffer the consequences of open adherence to Judaism and Catholic calling. Now remember, even though these are, a lot of these are originally Portuguese people that they're, they, they're calling Jews, and it's Portugal who's taking the control. Remember, these are Portuguese Catholic empire now. This is the Portuguese Catholic empire. And who are most likely people of color too. It's not like, you know, we're talking about the Holy Roman Empire. Remember, that was Charles V who was doing that against the Protestant faith and Jews and Moors, Muslims. So they were given three months to leave these Jews in Brazil or suffer the consequences of open adherence to Judaism and Catholic colony. These were the events that linked together all the Sephardic Jewish communities scattered throughout the Caribbean region during the 17th and 18th centuries. So, again, they'll say that, you know, if they didn't come directly from Holland or from uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, these Sephardic Jews uh, in history, they'll tell us, well, they came from Brazil. Now we know the whole background of how they got to Brazil, who are these people and what happened and how they ended up in, in these other islands in the Caribbean, like Nevis, you know, Jamaica, Suriname, the Trinidad. 
Eventually, descendants of these folk established Sephardic communities and seaports along the Atlantic seaboard of North America. Eventually, where did they end up? In North America, and along where? The Atlantic seaboard. Hmm, I want to South Carolina, right? Particularly in the cities of Providence, Newport, and New York. All right, you see? Providence, Newport, and New York. Rhode Island. Newport, New Jersey, or New York, and then New York, right? It's convenient at this point in the narrative to pause and to consider the prospects of that face the Portuguese Jews about to leave Brazil. The vast majority of these folks sought and eventually gained entry into English-speaking lands. Public opinion in England at that time was against permitting Jews to enter the country. The story began to circulate in England in 1649 that the Jews had offered to buy St. Paul's Cathedral and the Bodleian Library, inconceivable as truth, but well designed to increase the blood pressure of patriotic Englishmen. During the protectorate, Oliver Cromwell displayed religious toleration in advance of his times and probably some appreciation of potential economic development in allowing some Jews to enter the country. They were Sephardic Jews, but more probably from Amsterdam than from Brazil. Cromwell met the question of Jewish immigration into England obliquely by failing to pronounce a policy, a course, political action not unknown in the 20th century. It worked to the advantage of the Jews in that day, were not singled out for special taxation. It was not until later in the 17th century that the legal rights to reside and trade in England was restored to them. In contrast, the colonial authorities in England were well disposed toward the entry of Jewish refugees from Brazil into the colonies of the Caribbean region. At the same time, the Dutch authorities encouraged Jewish migration to their mainland and inland colonies lying to the north of Brazil. For their part, the Jews, with experience as traders and planters, with capital and slaves, were anxious to carry on with a lucrative enterprise in sugar. Accordingly, within the space of a few years, Portuguese Jews became residents of the Guiana coast and the various islands from the mainland Suriname to Jamaica, where they engaged in trading and agricultural pursuits. All right, so you see how they're populating uh, the rest of the Caribbean and eventually into North America.